How can you say that you love God whom you don't see if you do not love your neighbor whom you see? Inner peace is the ultimate source of happiness. He loves you and he wants your happiness. You love your neighbor as yourself by warning them when their sin has taken them to hell. Just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. Good morning or afternoon or night or whenever to our pod listeners. Uh, glad that you are all tuning into this uh, we, as we continue with this series uh, on mixed signals. Uh, this is a, like a different kind of setup. In fact, I don't think we've ever had a setup like this. I, I feel like I'm, you know, at, uh, this is Weekend Update starring Seth McCoy and Craig Boyd. <laughs> Latest news is, yeah, it just kind of feels official. Uh, here's a little bit of news that's serious. <laughs> Now, this is a serious piece of news, right? Uh, this is, uh, and this has nothing to do with the sermon, but it's, it's newsworthy. Um, this is the 50th anniversary of Selma, as I hope all of you know. Uh, and in light of um, the recent discoveries and the goings-on of the Ferguson police and stuff, um, that takes on extra significance. And if you think that's the only place in the United States where that kind of thing happens, uh, there's, there's underneath the surface of this wonderful country uh, some deep-seated racism. And um, we're called to be people. We, we, we can't fix uh, the culture and society, but, but we're called to, model, to follow the example of Jesus and side with those who are on the losing end of the social hierarchy and enter into solidarity with them and to cry out with them and to manifest. Uh, we're called to manifest the one new humanity that Jesus died for. Amen. Uh, where all walls have been torn down, and there is no hierarchy. And um, so it's just worth saying that and announcing that and reminding ourselves that that's our call. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, that has nothing to do with the message this morning, (laughs) but it's an important message in and of itself. So uh, we uh, are going to be talking about, we're looking at all these different voices in in this pluralistic culture. How do you hold on to your distinctive Christian faith in a a culture where there's so many different truth claims, so many different religious beliefs, uh, so many voices, mixed signals, uh, and, and how do we negotiate those waters? Um, and the issue we'll be talking about this morning is, I think, widespread, probably the most widespread belief that we encounter in this pluralistic age. And so with that, I want to turn it over to my esteemed colleague, Seth. Take it away. Thanks, Greg. So I have another job. I'm on the side when I'm not preaching. I'm a barista. Um, barista. So I'm going to tell you a little about coffee. Now, when I was younger, I used to make my dad's coffee for him when he headed off to work. And my dad drank Folger's Classic Roast. Um, <laughs> Now, before I go too much further in this message, like, just want everyone to know this is like a coffee judgment-free zone. I know that there's some people that judge and get their self-worth by what kind of coffee they drink, and not not going to get into that too much, okay? Coffee right. idolatry. That's... Okay, now, uh, about 20 years ago, uh, a little company in Seattle said that they perfected coffee, and they started um, getting higher-quality beans, roasting them. So, like, Folger's coffee is like coffee beans from around the world, a lower quality coffee. I'm not judging anybody. I'm just saying like, that's what helps keep the price down. This came along as more expensive. My grandfather would never drink a cup of Starbucks coffee because he would never pay the price. But Starbucks people totally would judge people that drank Folgers coffee, right? I know that you don't believe it. Now, these days, did you know that there's actually people who drink more expensive coffee that look at Starbucks people the way that Starbucks people look at Folgers people? (laughs) This is a sick society that we live in, right? 
Now, one of the things about this new kind of coffee is uh, oftentimes it's called single-origin coffee, which means it's coffee that's grown on one farm in one region, oftentimes in one area of that one farm. So it has a distinctive and specific Ooh. flavor, unlike Folgers, which would have kind of a general coffee flavor. And what we want to talk to you about this morning... Um, is to talk to you about the generic God that we meet in our culture and hopefully give you some reasons why a specific and single origin God is superior. Greg, over Great to you. analogy. Uh, and just FYI, as I am told that this is the kind of coffee you use at Groundswell. Yes. When you are a barista. Yeah. Okay, so Groundswell down in the Hamlin area. If you want to really be among the elite, to drink the elite coffee... Uh, it really is good tasting stuff, though, and my, it, that has nothing to do with the fact that my son-in-law and daughter are co-owners. Okay, that, yeah, nothing, nothing at all. I, I just, I just pointing out to, to expand on the analogy just a little bit, just a little bit. So um, we're calling this the generic God, and it is, I think, of all the particular voices we're looking at in the culture, um, making truth claims. This is the one that is most widespread. Uh, it's generic. Now, to, to kind of flush it out, I want to start with uh, Psalms 50, just to kind of unpack this. Um, here the, the Lord says to his people, You sit and testify against your brother and slander your own mother's son. And when you did these things and I kept silent, silent, you thought I was exactly like you. You thought I was exactly like you. Uh, someone once said that in the beginning God made humans in his own image. And humans have been returning the favor ever since. In the beginning God made humans in his own image. And humans have been returning the favor ever since. We make God in our own image. Uh, it's uh, part of our fallen tendency to think that God is exactly like us. Um, we unconsciously project onto the screen of heaven our values and our desires, our priorities, and we assume that God is like that. We project ourselves onto the sky and we call that God. Um, we make God in our own image. And so, for example, throughout most of history, men have dominated most cultures uh, and have done most of the theologizing. And, so, and what men throughout most of history have craved after, the highest value, the highest priority for them was gaining power. And in much of history, it's been a matter of survival. Uh, you need a certain amount of power just to survive. The more power you have, the more protection you can offer yourself and your loved ones. The more power you have, the more you can impose your will on others. The more power you have, the more you can uh, crush your enemies and further the self-interest of your tribe. So they, they've, they've, they've created power, coercive power. And so it's not surprising that if you look at the history of religions, since we tend to assume God is exactly like us, guess what? The gods are into power. They're power gods. Uh, they are God precisely because they've got more power than us. Uh, that's their all-defining quality. And you worship them because they've got more power than us. And then religion evolves um, as a way of appeasing the, the most powerful God. Uh, you don't want to take that God off, and so you offer sacrifices or whatever it is that you think that God requires um, to, to, to just keep that God from getting angry with you. In fact, what religion tries to do, it's kind of a quid pro quo relationship with God. You, you, you try to get that God on your side, court his favor, become his favorite, because then he'll help you be protected and help you defeat your enemies and win in wars and, st and stuff like that. And that's pretty much the stuff that religion's been made of. We always make God after our own image. Now, th there's um, still a lot of people who are into the power gig, for sure. Uh, the, the core value for them is power. Uh, folks who really believe, and this is kind of pandemic in, I think, American Christianity, but they believe that they'll be doing the country and the world a favor if their will gets imposed on others. And so they're craving after power. That's why they get involved in all the politics and they bring the religion to the politics because they want to impose their 
their views on others because their views are superior. Uh, that's what they assume. And so not surprisingly, uh, those folks who, for whom power is still a core value tend to worship a power god. Uh, god is defined as God because of his power. And that's why you worship him. It's not because of his character or wisdom so much. It's just that he's got the power to do anything he wants. Some will even celebrate that. Like, he can damn predestined multitudes to go to hell, maybe even the majority to go to hell. And he can because he can, because he's God. He gets to do whatever he wants, and our job is to worship him. And if you don't worship him, well, then maybe you're one of the ones that he's predestined to go to hell. It's the worship of sheer power, just power. And it's usually done out of a fear motivation. So there's still a lot of folks who are into the power gig and worshiping a power God. But... Uh, over the last century, and especially over the last several decades, as the world has shrunk and we've become more pluralistic, and folks are rubbing shoulders with people of different faiths, different religions, um, well, values have changed a little bit. Uh, as, as we've come to the realization, most people understand, as this world's become more pluralistic, that the idea that one religion's going to win, well, that's just got to go. In fact, that's a dangerous idea. Power and religion... Uh, together become dangerous. In, in a post-9-11 world that we live in, we're very aware of that. Uh, folks who are still trying to win, that's ISIS and, and, and Poco Haram and, and, and those groups. Uh, they think they can squish the competition or at least terrorize the competition to make them shut up. And so the culture now sees that with suspicion, but the, the, new, the new core values that have arisen, and this has been coming for actually a couple centuries, but it, it's, it's been turbocharged recently. The, the core values now are civility and tolerance, we're aware that we need to get along in this world. No one's going to win, so we've got to just kind of learn to get along and tolerate and accept one another and not judge, maybe even appreciate one another. Tolerance and civility are the core values. And since we tend to make God after our own image, guess what? Uh, we end up with a God whose core values are tolerance and civility, a very tolerant, civil, nice God, and who just wants people to be tolerant and civil. Those are the, that's what God really is about. So, for example, a couple... You, a couple of years, maybe a couple of decades, a long time ago, I, was, I had this relationship with this guy. He's a non-believer, and I was trying to, uh, at some point, introduce him to Jesus and the kingdom and, and hoping that he would, he would uh, submit to that. And so, uh, in the course of this relationship, at one point, religion popped up, and uh, the topic of religion. And so I shared with him that I, why I believe in Jesus and what he's meant to me. And his response to me was, he said, well, I really don't think God gives a hoot what you believe. As long as you're a good moral person and, and you accept others and you try to help others, that's what God really is into. And then he said, you know, if you can just get through all the doctrine BS in different religions, at their core, they all teach the same thing, and that is do unto others as you want them to do unto yourself. Now, there's not a religion out there that would agree with that. I mean, how would you, what would you think if someone said, oh, the core of Christianity, which is just what he said, the core of Christianity is to treat people nicely. Well, that's... Not quite the core of Christianity. The guy didn't know a thing about religion, but I didn't want to point that out because I'm trying to win him into the kingdom, so I shut up. But he perfectly expresses the generic God. This is the generic God in, in a nutshell. It's, it's the let's all get along sort of God. The let's get all, all get along religion. And see, in a pluralistic environment where we're always having, bumping up against and even having relationships with people of different faiths, and there's so many confusing voices out there, this is sort of the easiest thing to believe. It's, it's sort of the, the lowest common denominator. Let's just all agree on this. Um, and it's the safest thing to believe, because if everyone accepts this, then, then people won't be blowing each other up. And so this generic God is about uh, being tolerant, being nice, being fair, um, and he wants you to be happy, and he wants you to be fulfilled. And people don't really develop a deep relationship, not usually, a deep relationship with this God, 
Um, and there's nothing really required of us individually. We still are Lord of our own life and call our own shots. Uh, but this God is there to help us, most people think, in, in times of need. You know, you call out when you're in, in trouble. And because he's a nice God, he'll be there to help you. And he wants you to be fulfilled and will help you do that. But it's, it's sort of a grandfather from a distance. It's not a per, personal, intimate sort of relationship. Okay, so that's, that's, in a nutshell, the generic God, and it's widespread. And there's Christians' versions of it, and Jewish versions of it, and Islamic versions of it. It's just across the board. A, a general, foggy, grandpish, nice deity. And if you're good, you go to heaven. And if you're not, well, we don't talk about that much because it's not nice. And being nice is what this thing is all about. So what should we make of this generic God? Here's the thing. As I mentioned last week, and I repeat with some frequency... Uh, the single most important question to ask with regard to any possible thing you might consider believing is, what is the picture of God that it presupposes? Because the definitive revelation of God, and we teach this all the time around here, the, the definitive, decisive, unsurpassable revelation of who God is down to his very essence is Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And so the question is, is how does this generic view of God line up with the God who's revealed on the cross? Now, in some respects, there's some overlap here. To a certain degree... It does conform to the God who's revealed on the cross. I think it conforms much more than the power vision of God conforms. Um, you know, Jesus did teach, be, treat others the way you'd want to be treated. He did tell us not to be about imposing our will over others, but to be serving others. He told us not just to tolerate people who are different from us, but to love them and to serve them and to bless them. Uh, he did say that if we follow him, we'll find joy and, and happiness. Though I think what he meant by joy and happiness is quite different than what most people mean. But there's some overlap there between the generic God and the God revealed on the cross, and we need to affirm that. And God wants us to be on the side of social justice and fairness for people. On the other hand, having said that, there is, I think, a million light years that separate these two beliefs. Um, and the main reason is because the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ is anything but a God who's made in our own image. In fact... The God who's revealed to Jesus is the opposite of, of the God, of any form of God who's made in our own image. And so Paul said this, for example, in 1 Corinthians 1, he said that to those who are perishing, uh, the cross is foolishness and weakness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, now here's the thing. To the natural mind, that does look foolish. It looks foolish because we assume that God is exactly like us. <laughs> And if we had the power to avoid suffering, we would use it. If we had the power to avoid getting crucified, we would not get crucified. If we had the power to crush our enemies, well, we'd crush them before they crushed us. That's what we would do if we were God. And so it looks foolish when someone says that God, who had the power to stop it, to prevent it, he ended up getting crucified. That looks foolish, and it looks weak, it looks stupid. And yet Paul says this is the power of God. He wasn't crucified despite his power. No, the cross is the power of God. It's, it, it's crazy. When, when God gets exactly what he wants, it looks like him getting crucified. When God shows off how powerful he is, it looks like him getting crucified. When God flexes his omnipotent bicep, it looks like him getting crucified. And that is, by world standards, crazy. I mean, one of the ways you know that this is divine revelation is no human being would ever make this up. We know what gods look like when human makes them up. Make them up. Yeah, you know, they look like Zeus and Thor and Allah. And, and, and because the God who was real on the cross accommodates people where they're at, including their own views of, of, of who he is, you find some of that even in the Old Testament. But the cross reveals a God who's antithetical to the man-made gods that we find throughout history and world religions. And the reason is because this is not a projection of some human being. This is God projecting himself uh, and us. And this is God coming down to our level. And it's because his power is synonymous with his self-sacrificial love. 
he, he rules through the power of his serving, other-oriented, passionate love. So the generic God is nice and tolerant. But the crucified God is not just nice and tolerant. No, the crucified God is a God who, to the very core of his being, is passionate, fiery, self-sacrificial love. And the generic God is a distant, nice grandpa who's up there watching and cheering on us to be moral. But the crucified God, he's not up there someplace. He's down here. The crucified God, uh, he becomes one of us. He dives into our mess. He takes on our humanity so that we can share in his divinity. And then he goes further than on the cross and, 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 and takes on the very worst that the world has to offer out of love for us to redeem us. Uh, this is, you call this God crazy, call this God insane, but don't call him generic. He's anything but generic. And then the generic God encourages us to be tolerant and to not judge. And that's wonderful so far as it goes. But see, the crucified God, he doesn't just talk, he does. And he, he becomes a human being, and then he enters into solidarity with the worst of the judged. He befriends the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and so he shares their judgment. The Pharisees rail at him the same way they rail at the prostitutes and the, and, and, and the tax collectors. He enters into solidarity with the judge. And then, most of all, on the cross, he reveals a per- perfect expression of his love is when he becomes the judged. On the cross, he stands in the place of all who are judged, which is all of us. And he bears our sin. He becomes our sin. He becomes our curse. He suffers all the death consequences that, that we deserve. He couldn't have gone further if he wanted to, to, uh, to save us and to show his love for us. And so he reveals the, the infinite intensity of the love that he is. And he does all of this in order to share himself with us. In fact, the, the, the generic God motivates people just by having a rule, be nice and be tolerant. Uh, the crucified God motivates people by putting on display the beauty of his character, revealing himself, and, and, and then saying, would you like to share in this throughout eternity? That's why Paul says the love of Christ compels us. So he invites us to participate in the joy and the peace and the love that he eternally is and which he won for us on the cross. Uh, There is a million light years difference between the generic God and the crucified God. Um, uh, This is a God of passion and fiery love. This is a God of civility and tolerance. Good so far as it goes, but not nearly not nearly as beautiful and as compelling as the picture of God that's revealed in Jesus. The difference is a little bit like the difference between a handshake with a stranger, which is cordial, nice, and civil, and making passionate love to your spouse. Uh, I hope that for you there's a world of difference between those two things. Uh, that's the difference between the generic God and the God revealed on the cross. And with that, I turn it over to my esteemed colleague, Seth. Take what a great away. place to start, right? <laughs> handshake and sex. There you go. Uh, so in January, uh, I joined the multitude of ranks of people who did the same thing that I did and decided that this was going to be a year for me to get in better shape. Uh, so I went and joined the gym, and then I found out that Greg and I belong to the same gym. Now, when I, so occasionally I run into him when I'm there. Now, when I'm there, I'm doing some serious work, and uh, what Greg is doing is toning. That's what, it, that's what it's called. So... I get on the treadmill, and really the treadmill tears me to pieces. I hate it. I'm like breathing and sweating, and Greg's got his headphones in listening to speed metal. Only way to do it, man. Crazy person. You should Uh, try it. It takes your mind off the pain. Now, now after a while, um, I'm not the brightest guy, but eventually I'll get it. And I figured out that not only do I have to exercise, but I also like diet is also part of the equation. I figured this out. Um, It's good. So I've been trying to eat better. Uh, however, here's what happened to me on Friday. Friday was my day off, and so my wife and I went uh, to eat at a, a little restaurant over um, just on pain. Delicious food. I decided since I'd been good and worked out every day of the week, I, I was going to splurge and order some pancakes. Reward yourself. That's always the death nail. <laughs> I deserve a reward for being such a good boy. <laughs> so I got the pancakes. 
Uh, and we had breakfast and great time. And me and my wife went to a few estate sales and it came for lunch. And for lunch, I was pretty good. But towards the end of lunch, we were getting ready to leave and we walked by this bakery. And in the bakery, there was this bakery case. Bakeries have those. Mm. And they had, uh, like, my, I met my nemesis there. It's uh, caramel cheesecake. And with the graham cracker crust. And so, like, here's what happened. So my, my will decided that I was going to start exercising this year. And then my mind is, like, getting, you know, like, my body's getting killed at the gym, but my mind's trying to think in some new ways. But when I walked by this piece of cheesecake, here's literally what my mind did. I know none of your minds are like this, just mine. <laughs> no. It said, well, Seth, um, you've had some pancakes today already. So this piece of cheesecake isn't going to be that much of a difference moving from one to the next. So I, so I got the piece of cheesecake and, and I, I ate half of it because I decided then I could still show a little restraint. So I ate yeah. half of the cheesecake and left the other half, which I finished about three minutes later. <laughs> so my will saying I want to work out and I want to exercise and my mind is struggling and my body has this appetite. By the time I get to dinner... You would think that what I would do at dinner time is in repentance and submission, I would eat a salad. But I am a sick man, and that is not what I did. Instead of repenting, what I did was, here's what my mind said. Um, You've already totally blown it today. Why not just go all out? (laughs) Backsliding with a vengeance. Burgers and fries and chocolate chip mint ice cream. Um, which is really funny when we talk about food. However, um, this problem goes deeper than this. You know, there's actually, a, a, there's actually a psychological phrase for this thing that we do in our minds. When what we want with our will and what our mind is doing and what our body's doing, when those things start coming apart and they're no longer connected, there's this little thing in us called our soul. And part of our soul's job is to hold these three things together. And the soul has a more difficult job the more disintegrated these three things get. Do you ever meet or talk to somebody and they say, like, I feel like the wheels are coming off, or I feel like I'm losing myself, or I feel like I'm coming apart at the seams. Those are cries of the soul. When the soul says, I can't hold these together anymore. What you want with your will and what toxic things are going on in your mind and the appetites of your body, when Paul says, like, there's sin in your members, this is what he means. And your soul's job is to try to hold these three things together. And it's funny when it's about cheesecake and when it's about ice cream, but what about when it's hatred or resentment or anger? These are things that tear a human soul apart and make us lose them. And the reason why a generic God isn't good enough for me, he might be good enough for you, he's not good enough for me, because somewhere along the road of my life, I I lost my soul. What I wanted with my will and what was happening with my mind, it was happening with my body, you could not hold them together anymore. And when Jesus uses this phrase, uh, he, he talks about this in Matthew chapter 11, he's not just sharing good, generic, tolerant advice, Um, he's assessing the human condition. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. When I was younger, um, my youth group experience was really terrific, and my youth pastor told me all the time it was part of our job to go out and save souls. And, you know, what I imagined was uh, I had kind of a cartoon vision of the soul. 
Um, you know, like when Daffy Duck gets run over by a car and flattened, you know that he's dead, and then this sort of apparition kind of flat figure comes up with a halo and a harp and kind of floats up into the sky. The, the problem is that's not your soul. Um, your soul is this part that needs to be saved, that's trying to hold your life together and trying to integrate you back into a whole human being, which is what Jesus not only talked about and taught about, but what he accomplished. But this idea of saving souls matters. Um, a famous pastor in California uh, shared this story about when he and his wife took some dancing lessons. I'd like to read it for you. He says, uh, Nancy and I, when we went back to California, one of the things we decided to do was to take dancing lessons. Nancy grew up a California girl. She was graceful and a great dancer, but not me, John says. I grew up in Rockford, Illinois. This is not the dance capital of the world. I grew up in a Baptist church in a Swedish family, so I never danced. And we knew Jesus didn't dance. <laughs> but we went back to California. I actually thought it'd be fun to take dance lessons, so we did. I, would, I knew that I'd be no good at it, he says. So we took lessons, and the owner of the studio came over real quick. It wasn't long. He could see we were already having problems, and I knew it would be me. But when he came over, he actually didn't talk to me. He talked to Nancy. He said to her, Now, Mrs. Orberg, you have to understand that for this dance to work, for it to have grace and for it to have beauty, for it to come alive, there's a real important dynamic here, and you guys are having a problem with it. He said, For this dance to work, somebody has to lead, and somebody has to follow. It's just got to be that way. Someone has to be the leader. Someone has to be the follower. So he looked right at my wife and he said, Ms. Zorberg, I just have to ask you, when you're dancing with your husband, who is leading? And she was real quiet. She said through slightly gritted teeth, he's leading. And then the owner of the studio said, and who's following? And more gritted teeth. She said, I'm following. Now, I didn't say a word, John said, but I enjoyed this immensely. <laughs> I asked him if he could come over to our house once in a while. We could keep talking through this, that it would be good. Who came up with a rule in dancing that the guy has to lead? If she's good, why didn't she lead? There must be a rule about that. The guy's got to lead? Sexism in the dance room, I declare. Who came up with that rule? Uh, Now, I do have a rule that you can agree with. Look at what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. He's talking about not dancing but dancing with the triune God. Calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat, I am. Don't run from suffering, which is what I want to do, but embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no self at all, especially when the self is the problem. Self-sacrifice is the way. My way to saving yourself your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? What could you ever trade your soul for? The reason a generic God doesn't work for me is because I can't lead myself. Uh, I need a generic God to lead. Or sorry, I need a specific God to hey. lead. I need Christ to lead. Who's side are you on, dude? <laughs> um, the thing about it is I used to think that what Jesus meant when he talked about your soul and getting the whole world, that what he meant was like he was talking about value, that like Ferraris and big houses or tiny houses for that matter, organic farming and social justice and like add up all these things that we can try to accomplish. And if you, if you measure them to your soul, your soul is worth more. But I don't think that's what he means. I think he means you can actually get all of that stuff. 
And if your will and your heart and your mind and your body are disintegrated, it won't matter. None of that stuff will mean anything. The reason why a generic God doesn't help me is because a generic God can't heal my soul. Last thing for me, a generic God can't heal our world. It's not just human bodies and human wills and hearts that are disintegrated. We look around our world and it's coming apart at the seams. We can't seem to fix it. Mm -hmm. And yet what I get in the picture that we get of Christ, the picture that we get of God in Scripture, isn't a generic God. It's a God who has vision in a world with very little of it. Look at the vision that God has for, uh, for our world. Revelation chapter 22. And then the angel showed me the water of life, river, crystal bright. It flowed from the throne of God and the Lamb right down the middle of the street. The tree of life was planted on each side. There's not two trees anymore. There's one tree and it's on both sides. And it produces 12 kinds of fruit and they're ripe each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And don't we need nations to be healed? Mm -hmm. Never, never again will anything be cursed. This vision of the world is captivating. And a generic God's vision isn't. A generic God can't lead me and can't heal my soul and doesn't have a vision for the world. What did I miss, Greg? You got it all. I love your head motions. The way you, it's so emphatic. It's, like, it's really good. I, no, I, I, bingo. I, I, the, the core thing I think is that, that the generic God, the reason why it's so popular is because it's easy, requires nothing of you, and leaves you as still Lord of your, your own life. Mm-hmm. And the trouble is, is that you're the problem. And so you're putting the sheep in charge of the wolf. Um, what we need, as you said, is a savior. Um, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're not, we, we don't seem to need a little tweaking. And that's what people think. Oh, we're all basically good, but we get misguided. And so we just need a little tweaking and some advice and some encouragement and cheerleading from heaven. But uh, the, the, the reality is that we're sick. Uh, we're, 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 we're diseased. Uh, Paul even says that we're dead in our sin. And so what we need is a Savior. Um, and the other thing that just comes to mind as you're, you're talking there is that uh, the generic God is okay with just showing up when, when you need him to here and there. Because people don't realize that they always need him to. But he's okay just, you know, being there on call, the on-call God. Whereas Jesus, he's, he, what the cross shows is he's a God who, who has immersed and wants to immerse himself into every area of our life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he wants to be invited into the innermost uh, nook and crannies of our heart, the secret closets where we don't even dare to look ourselves, where we don't even admit things to ourselves. He wants to be involved in all of our decisions in every moment of our life. And that's how he transforms us. He doesn't just tweak us, he transforms us from the inside out because as we open up to him all of our, our, our failings and our struggles and we see that he loves us just as much when we admit those things as when we don't, uh, then that reconfirms to us our worth and our value. We get our identity from him and we're transformed from the inside out. Uh, it's, it's, it's world difference between the generic God and the crucified God. Yeah. So uh, maybe you're here and you're a Christian and like I am and you have a lot of interaction with people who significantly believe in this generic God. You know, what's the approach? Should we get a baseball bat and hammer people or what should we do? Probably not. Probably not. I have three suggestions for you. Um, The first thing I would say is uh, have compassion. Um, People have lost their way and they don't need judgment. They need compassion. Um, that the, the thing that's drawing people to this is their, their sense of need. And we notice, like, whenever Jesus had interaction with people that, are, that had need, he had compassion. 
The second thing I would say is see the good. Anytime someone is looking for some kind of help outside of themselves for a need that they have, that is always a good thing. It's at least a first step towards humility. Like if you know that you're broken and you're looking for something, that at least provides a pathway for something new. So like it's, it's a great thing to be able to encourage the good things that you see in someone else. It's more likely they'll listen to you if you're encouraging some of the good things that you see. And then the third thing I would say is I think the most impactful way to to make a generic God specific um, is having the courage to tell your story. Like, you are one of the ways that a generic God becomes specific because that God has interacted with you and transformed you and your story is real. It's not your job to convince them that your story is true or that the specific God is real. It's your job to do what the Bible would call witnessing or testifying, which is to say that, like, my story is that I was a broken soul ever since I was a little boy. Uh, and God stitched my life together day by day, and he's still doing it. That's part of my story with a specific God. And you can share that courageously and honestly. People can take it or leave it. But that's one of the ways that we help this distant grandfather God come closer is by them seeing that that God has come close in you. That's good. Rick? I, I want to end by making this kind of more personal. Um, I don't know about you, but I find that... Uh, the generic God is what I tend to backslide to. Because it's easy, uh, and because it's part of the culture we breathe, it's easy to absorb. In fact, if we're not intentional, we will inevitably absorb all the ungodly aspects of our culture. Uh, it takes a lot of intentionality to fight that. But I find that I, 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 this is what I backslide to. It's not very different than, say, marriage relationships, where if you're not intentional about keeping the passion, the fire in the relationship, it will inevitably seep out of the relationship. And it can happen, and maybe I'm naming some folks listening to this this, this weekend, um, you know, that you're passionate at one point, and then slowly, without even noticing it, you just sort of degenerate into becoming just cordial roommates with benefits. Yeah, you pay, maybe not even benefits after a while. You, you pay bills together, but it, it, the fire's gone, the passion's gone. You have a generic marriage. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's okay, you get along, you're civil, that's good. But it's not, the, it's not the passion that you dreamed of. Same thing happens in our relationship with God. Um, it, it, it takes a lot of intentionality to keep that fire going and uh, to keep you know, pursue, growing in him and pursuing him. And um, uh, it's very easy to just sort of degenerate to a generic thing. So I, I, I want to ask several questions here. And just I'd like you to, to ask the Holy Spirit to make you very honest with yourself. Um, if, it, if it helps to close your eyes... Close your eyes. If you're listening to this through podcast while driving, don't close your eyes. Um, but uh, Holy Spirit helps us to be honest. First, ask this question, and we need to always come back to this. I, I, I don't know what your theology is, but what is your real picture of God? How do you really envision God? Because it's his beauty that compels us. Uh, the beauty of our relationship with him and the beauty of our life will never outrun the beauty of the God that we envision. How do you really envision God? Do you envision God kind of as, in general, distance, foggy terms? Uh, the grandpa in heaven, nice guy? Or do you envision the God who, out of his self-sacrificial love, his passion, became a human, died on the cross, entered into our hell to bring us out of hell? How do you envision God? If your vision of God, if your mental image of God is boring, you'll have a boring relationship. Because the generic God doesn't inspire anything. 
our eyes are fixed on Jesus, as the New Testament says, and we regularly gaze into his glory, well, that's how we're transformed. What is your picture of God? Most related to that, what's your relationship with God? Do you call on God? You find it you call on God mainly when you just need Him, or are you cultivating a marriage-like relationship with God, the way you do or the way you would with a spouse? And that's about spending time together. pursuing one another, never taking things for granted, always appreciating the beauty of the other and saying so. What's your relationship with God? Or another way of asking it, and the Holy Spirit helps us be honest, but is God sort of just a, an accessory to your life, a nice addition, there to help you stay moral perhaps and help you in times of need or to be happy? Or is God the God revealed on the cross, the center of your life? Is he the reason why you feel good about yourself, the reason why your life feels full, the, the motivation in your life? What makes you feel secure, even if you're dying? Because you know this will last forever. Is he the center? Is your God a generic God? or crucified God? Is your relationship a generic relationship? Or is it a relationship that reflects the passion of the cross? And as I'm asking this, if you're finding that, honestly, you line up more on the generic side of things than you do on the cross side of things, then I'm calling you to make a decision. And I I feel like this is a decision we have to make with some regularity because we always tend towards this generic blah God and blah relationship. The decision is to just revive it all, to repent, which just means you turn from one way of seeing things and doing things to a new way of seeing things and doing things. Turn from that generic God and recommit to envisioning God as he's revealed to be on the cross. That's who God really is like all the way down. And whatever you feel, whatever's going on in life, resolve, like Paul said, I know nothing other than Jesus Christ and crucified. Lock that in. Commit to it. And commit to spending time meditating on that and, and, and envisioning that. Because that's, Paul says, that's how we are transformed. And then, will you commit, as you turn from this generic relationship, commit to pursuing a marriage-like relationship with him. And commit to doing whatever you need to do to keep that in place, to hold you accountable to it. Will you commit to spending time talking to him and listening to him? Will you commit to inviting him into every area of your life? Will you commit to submitting everything to him? Because that's what it means to call him Lord. To surrender everything to him. Including the really, really ugly stuff. Because that's how it starts being beautified. And if this is, maybe for some, this is the first time you've ever considered the crucified God. You've always just had a generic God. Or for others... Maybe you've sort of just backslidden, cooled off into this generic view. But if, this, if, the, if change is what you're committing to now, then pray along with me. A prayer like this. Heavenly Father, 
we are sorry for having cooled in our relationship, for having, not being diligent on maintaining the passion. Uh, we're sorry for maybe allowing the culture, the generic God of our culture to influence us. We don't want to just be do-gooders who worship at a distance of Grandpa. We want to be followers of the crucified one. And so, Lord, will you infuse us with the power of your spirit to do what we can't do on our own, and that is to be disciples, to follow you, to pursue a marriage-like relationship with you, to spend time with you, to invite you into every area of our life, to submit everything to you. We surrender everything to you. Be Lord of our life, not just in general, in a generic way, but of every moment. And lead us, as Seth said, lead us in the way of peace and righteousness in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen, 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 amen. World of difference between generic and crucified Lord. Uh, Would you stand with me here? And I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward. Would you come forward here? And if you're here this morning and have any need that could use prayer, uh, come up here and pray with these folks. That's what they're here here for. And if um, you are here this morning and you are surrendering your life to Jesus for the first time, um, I'd like to ask you to come up here and talk to these folks because they'll help you get started on that that walking with God. And it is a walk. It's not a magical thing. It's, It's discipleship. As we leave here, can we do it as a people who are committed to never, never settle for generic, huh? Uh, we want to go for the name brand. We want to go for the specific. We want to go for the best. And the true God is the best, and he's the crucified God. And we are his people who are called to put on display that love to the world around us. If you agree with that, say amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out. Love on the world.